Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, media watchers may know that Katie Halper was fired from her job at the Hill TV because she did a thing that you can't do in elite U.S. news media, which is to make a statement critical of the state of Israel. Halper described Israel as an apartheid state a designation supported by the Israeli group Betzalem, as well as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. Her firing, along with others who've crossed that same highly policed line, is a loss for curious U.S. viewers who want to hear a range of not just views on Israel and Palestine, but news that would include stories like that of Ryan Suleiman a seven-year-old boy who died September 29th from a heart attack after Israeli occupation forces chased him home from school because, they said, some of the group of kids he was with threw stones at them. Dialogue around Palestine and Israel is among the most formulaic that elite media maintain. But growing numbers of people have concerns not just about uncritical U.S. support for Israel, but also about the shutdown of critics and the conflation of debate with the real problem of anti-Semitism. Counterspin talked about these questions in August with Ahmed Abuzned, executive director at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. We will hear that conversation today. Also on the show... Apparently, cryptocurrency is going through a rough patch. Who would have guessed that the thing that presented itself as a way for the little guy to go big in wheeling and dealing was, well, not exactly as presented. Counterspin spoke back in February with Chicago-based writer Sohail Mordazavi, whose article, Cryptocurrency is a Giant Ponzi Scheme, had just appeared at jacobinmag.com. We'll revisit that conversation today as well. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. Multiple explosions off the coast of Poland damaged both the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines, shutting down one and preventing the other from going online. The pipelines intended to carry natural gas from Russia to Germany are critical infrastructure for Europe's energy markets. As Bryce Green described for FAIR.org, the explosions triggered a lopsided whodunit in U.S. media, with commentators almost universally fingering Russia as the culprit, despite the lack of a plausible motive. Official U.S. opposition to the pipeline has been well established over the years, but most newsrooms suppressed this history and attacked those who raised it. The Washington Post quickly produced an account, European leaders blame Russian sabotage after Nord Stream explosions. It cited nothing but EU officials who claimed that while they had no evidence of Russian involvement, quote, only Russia had the motivation, the submersible equipment and the capability, close quote. Any serious coverage of the Nord Stream attack should acknowledge that opposition to the pipeline has been a centerpiece of the U.S. grand strategy in Europe. The long-term goal has been to keep Russia isolated and disjointed from Europe and to keep the countries of Europe tied to U.S. markets. 
Ever since German and Russian energy companies signed a deal to begin Nord Stream 2, the entire machinery of Washington has been working overtime to scuttle it. A 2019 Pentagon-funded study from the RAND Corporation on how best to exploit quote, Russia's economic, political, and military vulnerabilities and anxieties, close quote, included the recommendation to reduce natural gas exports and hinder pipeline expansions. As Russia was gathering troops at Ukraine's border, Under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland said, if Russia invades one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Joe Biden himself told reporters, if Russia invades, then there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. After a reporter asked how they planned to end a project that was under German control, Biden responded, I promise you, we will be able to do that. So contrary to what nearly the entire U.S. media establishment has presented, The U.S. has had ample motive to destroy the pipeline and is actively celebrating its demise. So to say, as some media have, that anyone acknowledging that is engaged in conspiracy theory is to use what is an important prism to just disparage well-documented efforts to peer behind the scenes of U.S. official policy. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. When Israel designated a number of Palestinian rights groups as terrorists, dismissed their legal appeals with no opportunity to defend themselves against secret evidence against them, and then raided and rifled and taped up their offices— The U.N.'s High Commissioner for Human Rights objected, saying it was an effort to, quote, halt, restrict, or criminalize legitimate human rights and humanitarian work, close quote. Ten European countries and the CIA agreed that Israel had not presented sufficient evidence for that terrorist labeling. The overt harassment of Palestinian human rights groups would be worrisome at any time, but it happened in a context of a series of airstrikes in Gaza that killed at least 46 people, including 16 children. Counterspin spoke with Ahmed Abuzned, executive director at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, who first offered some context on daily life in Gaza. The first most important thing I would share for folks who are, I think, still gathering knowledge about the issue of Palestine is to know that the people in Gaza have been separated and segregated from the rest of the Palestinian population because of a 15-year blockade imposed by the Israeli government. And even when we use terms like blockade, it's really important for us to help folks understand what that means. And so a blockade on the Gaza Strip means that Israel essentially controls everything that goes in via land or sea and comes out via land or sea. And of course, Gaza does not have an airport. You know, furthermore, when you talk about the situation of the people of Gaza, you have to understand that limited electricity, 75% of Palestinian people in Gaza are food insecure. You know, hospitals and health services are struggling to operate and save lives while themselves having to worry about being bombed. 
And so this ongoing trauma persists as long as this blockade exists, as long as the occupation exists, as long as this settler colonialism exists. And so for the Palestinian people all over, but particularly for the Palestinian people in Gaza, an intense blockade does not allow for them to experience the very basics of life. As I mentioned, the water being undrinkable at a 97% clip, electricity being something that's limited, food insecurity, right? This is average everyday life for the people of Gaza. Now, what's also important to note is because of a lack of a actual military, you have these confrontations between these various resistance groups in Gaza and the Israeli military. And to that, I would say that the Palestinian people are an occupied population. And I think when most Americans think about Israel and Palestine, they think about a conflict between two nations, each with the military, each with resources, each with the weaponry to defend themselves. And that certainly is just not the case. And so you end up in a dynamic where these resistance groups are firing rockets that rarely affect Israeli lives. Meanwhile, Palestinians face bombardments with which we've seen, you know, over 40 Palestinians killed in this latest round of violence, but just last summer, over 260. And so this is something that, unfortunately, kids 14 and under in Gaza have now experienced five times in their livelihood. Well, and just to the point that you've just made, that Washington Post, well, it was a reprint of actually an AP piece, talked about recent airstrikes as a flare-up that quote, left 49 Palestinians dead, close quote. And it makes it sound as though violence is intervening in Gaza or suddenly and intermittently there is violence in Gaza. And it sounds like what you're saying is we need to think about violence in terms of a daily, a daily violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this passive voice that media operates in is also extremely problematic. Airstrikes didn't just occur. The Israelis launched the airstrikes. Um, Also, You know, I've been hearing many folks talk about this as a defensive war, right? But I think, you know, if folks were to read through a lot of the nonsense, they'd find that, you know, this is a strike that Israel launched without any kind of defensive necessity, right? This was an offensive strategic strike that they started launching in Gaza, and then it escalated. And then, yes, the the point that you were uplifting that I made earlier is that the blockade is incredibly violent when a young Palestinian student in Gaza wants to study abroad, and they're denied the ability to travel by the Israelis that is incredibly violent and a direct result of them being Palestinian. When a cancer patient needs to access better health services in order to survive their battle with cancer and they're denied that ability, that is brutality. When a fisherman has his boats off the sea in Gaza and cannot leave past a certain radius that the Israelis grant them, that is incredibly violent. And folks, I think, are not as understanding of that when we think about terms like blockade and occupation. They don't understand how a checkpoint or a blockade being in the middle of a family who needs medical care in a hospital can oftentimes lead to death. And a trauma that, again, we have not had the chance to deal with as Palestinians because it's ongoing. Well, and I wonder what you make of the White House response then, which is, we're against this But we're not going to do anything about it. I mean, that's how it reads to me, is like we want to be officially on the record as opposing both the raids 
on the human rights groups and the attacks on Gaza, but that's not going to materially amount to anything in terms of policy change with regard to Israel. Yeah, that's right. The Biden administration is really just like any other U.S. administration in recent history. And what U.S. politicals have uplifted as their truth is that you need to walk with Israel and allow no sunlight between the U.S. and the state of Israel to succeed politically, domestically. The problem is we as Americans have no idea why strategically that makes sense for us. And so Americans, you know, I think every election we witness the U.S. president essentially pledging allegiance to the state of Israel, and we don't know what we get out of the deal. Um, so even if, if we did not have the perspective of the immense human rights abuse and the colonization and the ethnic cleansing, you know, we would at least as Americans be asking these questions about why is it that our tax dollars are going to this state that continually occupies and ethnically cleanses the people? And so that's why this media battle is particularly important. That's why, you know, sources like this, where folks can get a different perspective, one that's not often seen in mass media is critically important because there's a voice of the Palestinian people that even through it all is able to shift the conversation in the U.S. And that's why you've seen not only the targeting of these six NGOs in Palestine, but targeting of NGOs and Palestinian organizations here in the U.S. Before I get to any of that in the U.S., just to mention the six organizations. These are organizations doing critical work to support women organizing, right. agricultural workers organizing, political prisoners. And one of the orgs, DCIP, is literally, its mission is to defend children, right? And so these organizations are doing critical work to advocate for Palestinian rights, to advocate for Palestinian dignity, to advocate for Palestinian justice. And by the way, they're doing this in a completely nonviolent fashion. But the response that Israel has shown to these NGOs is exactly why we need to keep pushing. It's exactly why we need to make sure that we're involved in either BDS campaigns or Palestine organizing spaces in the U.S. that we need to donate. Because if Israel is telling us that the violent resisting groups are terrorists, right, that's their terminology. That's what they label the groups who resist. But then they're also labeling the groups that are engaging in congressional advocacy and organizing and lobbying. They're labeling those groups as terrorists too. And so what that means for us is that the lines have been blurred by the state of Israel. And they're doing that because we're winning. We're shifting the conversation. Folks are seeing the atrocities that the Israelis are conducting on a day-to-day -day basis. And they can't, from a PR perspective, continue to handle the way the conversation is going. So then what they would do is continue to label BDS as anti-Semitic and terrorist affiliated, continue to label organizations such as these six organizations as terrorist affiliated. And that way, you know, no matter how just or righteous their argument is, people would essentially tune them out. And I only want to add to that, thank you so much, Ahmed. I just want to add also for listeners that this idea that criticism of the state of Israel is inherently anti-Semitic, you can find progressive Jewish groups, you know, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice come to mind, but there are a number of groups who can inform you about how concern for Palestinian rights does not amount to anti-Semitism, and that should not be able to be used as a, as a wedge to divide people in the U.S. or anywhere, that that is a false conflict that's being set up by people who have their own interests. Absolutely. Yeah, if I could just touch on that. I mean, look, we all recognize 
the monstrosity that was Nazism and the, I think, brutal nature of the Holocaust and what happened to the Jewish people, obviously at that point in time, is something you know we are all opposed to. And we absolutely reject anti-Semitism. This is something that you know various Palestinian organizations have outright issued statements around. We reject anti-Semitism. However, when you colonize people's land and continue to do so, claiming to do so in the name of Jewish people worldwide, you're actually, again, blurring the line between Judaism and Zionism. So I think Zionism is to blame with a lot of the confusion that people have around Zionism and anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. You know, as Palestinian people, not only do we have Jewish folks that are in solidarity with us now, we have Jewish folks living with us in Palestine, side by side, speaking Arabic and across the Arab world. And actually, I'll note, there was a really great book released a couple of years ago by a Jewish author titled When We Were Arabs. And it tells the story of Jews in Arab lands, so Jews who viewed themselves as Arabs, who woke up every day listening to Arabic music, eating Arabic food, speaking Arabic amongst their families. And then Zionism kind of abruptly changed that across the region and, and, and of course, across the world. And so we have to reject those kinds of lines that are being drawn. Anti-Zionism is absolutely not anti-Semitism. And I can see a future where people acknowledge that. And that's, of course, going to be a future where Palestinians are finally free. We've been speaking with Ahmed Abuzned from the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. They're online at uscpr.org. Ahmed Abuzned, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks, Janine. That was Ahmed Abuzned speaking with Counterspin in August of this year. He's executive director at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. They're online at uscpr.org. When New York City Mayor Eric Adams lost money on his trumpeted decision to take his first paychecks in cryptocurrency, media reporting was respectful, suggesting that this was not silliness, but some kind of savvy, whether you lowlies understand it or not. Cryptocurrency isn't doing so great just now, but that is probably not enough to get the media to blow away some of the smoke and talk about this phenomenon's relationship to actual goods or services. In February of this year, Counterspin sought some insight on the matter from Chicago-based writer Sohail Morazavi, whose article, Cryptocurrency is a Giant Ponzi Scheme, appeared at jacobinmag.com. I started out by declaring my ignorance of the whole topic. I would probably start by saying, despite the name, these are not really currencies. Bitcoin was kind of started that way, at least in intent. But they really are just financial assets, and they get traded on financial markets kind of in the way that stocks would. But the big difference is that stocks are like legal ownership in a company, whereas cryptocurrencies are basically nothing. They're basically just digital cells on a spreadsheet that people trade back and forth. They're kind of like digital Chuck E. Cheese tokens almost, just in the sense that there's nothing there literally is nothing underneath any of them. And th- there are a lot of cryptocurrencies now besides Bitcoin, and many of them market themselves kind of in different industries. But honestly, it's entirely speculative. All of that's just hype, and it doesn't really mean anything. They're basically just speculative assets. Well, I already understand more than I did before. No, no joke. But let me just ask you, what accounts for the imagery of 
cryptocurrency as being pro-little guy or even revolutionary? Well, I think that it's kind of rooted in libertarian ideology to a certain degree. The person who invented the Bitcoin network did so after the 2008 crash, and the white paper for Bitcoin actually kind of says that it's in response to the 2008 crash. And, you know, a lot of libertarians, frankly, have like kind of glommed onto this and they sell it as, as you said, like as being good for the little guy. But it kind of misses the mark because the issue with the 2008 crash was that the banking system was underregulated. And this is kind of exactly the opposite. These are people who want to privatize financial markets entirely because cryptocurrencies, I mean, the one thing they do well is that they are decentralized. They are decentralized networks. There's no central managing authority, at least the Bitcoin blockchain at any rate. And that's just, yeah, it's just like they're privatized money, privatized financial markets. And to me, that's like the opposite of what we want to avoid another like major crash. Well, then what is the role of banks here or, or even more importantly, maybe what's the role of federal regulators? Are they just kind of bystanders here? Yeah, so they've been pretty asleep at the wheel on this whole thing. I mean, we have a pretty non-functioning political system in general. Getting any basic budgetary bill past Congress is nearly impossible. So getting actual regulation through has been, been really difficult. I know in New York State, there's been some move to regulate cryptocurrencies and in particular stable coins, which we should talk about in a moment. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like the DOJ has done investigations, the SEC, but everything is just like always a little too little too late. And we haven't really gotten a good bill out of Congress at all so far. Well, what is stable coin and what role does that play? Right. So this is what my piece in Jacobin was mostly about. So I feel like most people kind of get that crypto is this kind of like shady thing. It seems like gambling. It seems kind of like a con and probably a bad investment. And it really is all of those things. But my piece was actually homing in, as DOJ and the SEC did, on stable coins and the Biden administration as well, I should say. And so basically there are two main kinds of cryptocurrencies that are actually in use. And I will get yelled at for saying this because people will say that there's all these different kinds. But really there are speculative assets like Bitcoin. People are trading on these markets. And then there's also something called a stable coin, which instead of being like an asset that's traded at different prices, is pegged usually to the price of the dollar. And so the one that people know the most about is Tether which is issued by a Hong Kong-based company that runs the Hong Kong-based cryptocurrency exchange, mm-hmm. Bitfinex. So I know there's a lot of information it's I'm okay. dumping on you. Yep. But yeah, so these coins are pegged the dollar, and they're basically, they're treated as dollars on exchanges. Because a lot of these exchanges are overseas. Real banks don't want to do business with them, and they don't have access to, to dollars, basically, to facilitate exchanges on their exchange. So these stable coins provide liquidity on bank exchanges. But the thing about them is there's nothing stopping them from printing as many as they want, which is basically what's happening. You have these private companies issuing fake dollars on the blockchain and then sending them out to their own exchanges and doing basically God knows what with them. And there's nothing stopping them from using these fake dollars to buy at Bitcoin assets. And frankly, that's basically what they're doing. And researchers have looked into this. There is a class action lawsuit right now. Also, this is all on the blockchain. It's all public. We can see what's happening more or less. And so what my piece posits is that the entire cryptocurrency market is basically a Ponzi scheme in which these companies are printing fake money to buy up assets and drive up the prices. 
I get a lot of pushback on this. People will say, well, you know, technically a Ponzi scheme is a specific thing. They're usually like investment funds that lure in investors and pay out new investors with funds from older investors. And the thing about crypto is that everyone kind of understands that's the rule of the game. So that's not really fraudulent. They know it's a speculative asset, a purely speculative asset. The fraud comes in because these investors are buying thinking that prices are being driven by speculation when they're actually really being driven by market manipulation. I think that's really interesting because there's kind of a double level thing going on, at least with the narrative around it, where it's like, yeah, this is kind of sketch. But, you know, if you get on the roller coaster at the right time and get off it on the right time, the money you'll make will be real money, you know, even if we realize that it's ironically untethered from real goods and services as people generally explain them. But what you're saying is this isn't even tulips. This is something structurally worse. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is people make money on Ponzi schemes too. A lot of people invested with Madoff because they made a lot of money doing so and so it fell apart. Yeah. Well, what do you see as a way going forward. It's clear, yes, some folks are making money, absolutely. A lot of folks are also being duped, and then even more folks are being confused, not to put too fine a point on it. But what do you see as a kind of harm-mitigating way going forward? I think the only way going forward is just to ban them entirely. And that's what other countries are starting to do. China's banned crypto entirely. India's about to. Russia's about to. And they all talk about issuing their own state cryptocurrencies, but these aren't going to be the same kind of all a marketing gimmick. The actual private cryptos are being banned in all these other countries. And I feel it's really the only way because, I mean, these are private companies issuing these stable coins. There's no way we can stop anyone in, like some, in some other country outside of our own jurisdiction from opening exchange, printing their own stable coins and continuing the Ponzi. Because Tether is not the only company doing this, even though that's the one that gets talked about. There are multiple ones. So, yeah, I think a full ban is the only way to deal with it because there are companies like Coinbase that are banked exchanges. There's like Gemini, Coinbase, a few other ones are mostly based in like the U.S. and South Korea. And these actually are regulated crypto exchanges that do have banking relationships. And these are functionally the cash off ramps where people are actually exchanging Bitcoin or Ether or whatever for actual cash. And if we close these down, the whole thing will just die overnight. That's really the only way I see out of this. We've been speaking with Sohel Mordazavi. He's a Chicago-based writer, and you can find his recent piece, Cryptocurrency is a Giant Ponzi Scheme, at jacobinmag.com. Sohel Mordazavi, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. That was Sohail Mortazavi speaking with Counterspin back in February. His piece, Cryptocurrency is a Giant Ponzi Scheme, can still be found at jacobinmag.com. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.